Turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and these guys will be glad to give you one, or this guy, Mr. Bible we call him. If you need one, just raise your hand, he'll be glad to give it to you. Otherwise, turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm so excited for Peter Simons that he's finally getting closer and closer to the Lord. He realized, I've known Peter, we've worked together a long time, and I've known him even longer, but he finally realized that Scrooge is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, the one with Albert Finney from 1970-71, and maybe next year we'll get him to Christmas City. I don't know. For those of us that went, Brother John called me the other night. I forgot what night it was, maybe Friday night. It was Friday night. He called me at 7 o'clock. On Friday night, now I figured, well, somebody has passed away or there's some emergency. And he said, I just want to tell you, I'm in line to get into Christmas City and the cars are all the way back to the turnoff. You see, there are people who are discovering the light. They're being drawn to the light. The light that is Christmas City. All right, turn to Matthew chapter 1 if you haven't already. And I want us to, as we wrap up today this series, When History Met Hope. I've told you many times, my favorite word in the Bible to describe Christianity, who it is, what it is for me to be a believer, for us to be Christian, to be, to know Jesus Christ, is the word hope. And the word in Greek means confident expectation, not a leap in the dark, not a jump off the building, not a presumption of God, God will do this because I want him to. Hope means I confidently expect something to happen. It's not like the University of Memphis basketball team, I hope they're going to win another game. Not like that. It's that I know, I confidently expect, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded, totally convinced that he is able to keep that I've committed unto him against that day. 2,000 years ago in that little feed trough, in that inn with the horses and the stench, out there with the animals, the Son of God came because we needed to be born again. We needed a savior. We talked about last week, our greatest need was not a deliverer in a military sense, or God would have sent that. Our greatest need was not a reformer, or God would have sent a reformer. Our greatest need was not an educator, or he would have sent an educator. But our greatest need was and is forgiveness. So he sent a savior, the only one who could save. That's why we worship Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy of that worship. He alone makes it possible for me, for you, for every human being since Adam to know forgiveness. Adam brought sin and death. Jesus brought truth and life because he conquered sin and death. He offers forgiveness. He offers hope when you can find it no place else. When history met hope. Look at Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of all hope, all hope, Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Hope, hope, hope. Our God, the one we serve, the one we worship, the one we follow is the God of all hope. In another place, Paul wrote these words. He is the God of all comfort. Every funeral I do, I focus on those two words. God, Our God is the God of all comfort. You want comfort when you're hurting Especially in a time when a loved one has passed away, you can find it in the person of Jesus Christ. Our God is the God of all comfort. But he's also the God of all hope. And I know, and, and Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, we will be together again because we have this hope. We do not sorrow as others who have no hope. We as believers in Jesus Christ have hope, confident expectation. Life without hope is miserable. It's 
painful. It's terrifying to live a life with no hope. I was reading a Peanuts cartoon this week. I found it. I was just looking at it. I thought it was kind of funny. And Lucy and Linus were sitting around, and, and Lucy, in her inimitable way, uh, liked to give orders. And so she tells Linus, go to the refrigerator and give me something to drink. And Linus says, well, you never do anything for me. She goes, I'll tell you what. You go to the refrigerator and get me something to drink. When, when you're 65 years old, I'll bake you a cake. So Linus, the next scene, you see Linus, he's, at the, he's headed for the refrigerator. He's coming back. He's got something in his hand for, for Lucy to drink. And the caption says, Linus speaks, and he says, you know, life is much more meaningful when you have something to look forward to. <laughs> and he's 65. He was going to get him a cake, but at least he had something. And Jesus Christ, I may lose everything, everything in an earthly, material, worldly sense, but I do have hope. And the hope that we have with Jesus Christ motivates us not to give up. It motivates us to keep going. It motivates us to understand that we don't live in the moment. It's all about eternal perspective because our future is bright, despite the fact that it may be dark at the moment. It's bright because it's secure in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas offers the only hope. So what we're going to look at today as we wrap this up are three responses to the hope that God offered in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. That when history met hope on that day began the 33 greatest years in the history of mankind when God, Emmanuel, came to be with us, a baby, and grew up became a man and lived 33 years and died for our sins. The greatest period of time in the history of man, when God, when history met hope. Matthew begins his gospel. It's very interesting. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I always joke about this at Christmas, and uh, I still remember it when I was a little kid. And I grew up in a certain denominational church. When you reached a certain age, I forgot what it was, they gave you a little white New Testament. That was your Bible, and you were going to read it. When you open it up to Matthew, it's a little white New Testament, so you open it up to the first page, you're going to read your Bible, you're excited. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah, and you put your little New Testament down and you never pick it up again. That's the most boring thing in the world unless you understand what's going on. Matthew a Jew is writing an apologetic to Jews. Very important that you understand. He's writing to Jews to defend the fact that this Jesus is the Messiah all us Jews have been waiting on forever. We've heard about for hundreds of years, passed on from generation to generation to generation, the one, the anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King of the Jews is here. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ. That means the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the one that we have all been waiting on. And why that's important? Why is that important? Well, in Matthew 1, he begins his gospel with the birth of this Jesus. And so we'll notice in a few moments, he also begins at that moment to describe some events. One of them is Gentiles visiting the king of the Jews, the Magi, the wise men, Gentiles, non-Jews. He's writing to Jews. But there is a great reminder there that this gospel of the king of the Jews is for all men. The announcement the angels made to the shepherds we saw last week. Great news. News, good news of great joy. 
to all men. Matthew begins his gospel with the story of Jesus being born, the Messiah, coming to Jews, coming for Gentiles. It's really interesting to read. How does Matthew end his gospel? Now don't turn over there and look. What is the last thing in the gospel of Matthew? Anybody know? The Great Commission. He begins it with the Great Coming. God is here. Emmanuel, God with us. And, he, and he's for Jews and Gentiles. And he ends it with the Great Commission, where Jesus says to his Jewish followers right there, he says, now I want you to go. The literal in Greek is, as you go, I want you to go into Jerusalem, where you are, Judea, Samaria, where they did not want to go, because they were half Jews, half Gentile, they didn't like them. We do not want to go, they hated them. We didn't, they did not want to go there. But he ends his gospel with the Great Commission, begin here with the Jews, spread out to the Jews, spread out to the half-breeds, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Where would that be? Who would that be? Gentiles. And he ends it this way. To the nations, which is an Old Testament term for Gentiles. I want you to take this good news about me, the Messiah, King of the Jews, and take it to all the world, teaching them what I have taught you, making disciples, learner followers of this Jesus of Nazareth, who is a Jew, who is the king of the Jews, who is the savior of all the world. He begins his gospel about Jesus coming. He ends his gospel with Jesus commissioning his followers, take the good news about me to the entire world. 2,000 years later, it's still going on. This apologetic that Matthew wrote is what we take to the world to say to them, there is good news. God has come. God loves you. God is a God of grace. He begins and ends with Jesus Christ, which is what life is all about. So what you see in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, is Jesus' human, human right to the throne of David. He is the legal heir of this Joseph guy. Verses 18 through 25, you see the divine right. He is God because he's virgin born. 100% God, 100% man. He had the legal right to the throne of David because he was a, he was a lot in the line of the descendant of Joseph. He was Joseph's legal heir. But he also had a divine right because he was God. He was the Messiah, the only one. Uh, the Old Testament calls him the Son of Man. What's the most common reference Jesus made to himself while on earth? Son of Man. He was the one promised by the Old Testament prophets. He is the Messiah. He has the legal right. He has the earthly right. So in verses 1 through 17, you see the genealogy. Why is this important? Why does Matthew start his gospel with so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat, so that we would all put down our little white New Testaments and never pick them up again? No, because remember, he's writing a Jewish apologetic to Jews. If you were Jewish, your genealogy was extremely important to you. It was the most important thing to you. That you could trace your lineage back to who you, which one of the 12 tribes you came from, because that's how you got your tribal rights. That's how you got your inheritance. That's how you proved who you were. Be like, when I die, I have three children. When Mary and I pass away, that we have a will. And in our will, it says, they ain't nothing. <laughs> That's the Greek. Well, our children all have legal right, one-third each, to what we have. One-third of nothing is what, Doug? Thank you. Doug's in the business. He's good. But they could go down there, and they could fight, and they could, they could haggle over it. They're all legal heirs 
to what Mary and I have. If you were a Jew, it was extremely vital to you to be able to prove your genealogy and trace yourself back to you were a son of Jacob. Which one? Which tribe? That's verses 1 through 17. What's interesting is that in A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple, that those records were destroyed, the last person who could legitimately prove himself to be a son of David or um, the Messiah would have been who? Jesus Christ. wonder why. God don't make mistakes, does he? No. The whole emphasis that we talked about throughout this series is the sovereign hand of God. Who controlled Caesar Augustus and had him call for that census? God did. Why? Because there was a prophecy. They had to get to Bethlehem. Yeah, she was nine months pregnant, but we got to get to Bethlehem, so I'll take, I'll use Caesar, and I'll use Quirinius, I'll use whoever i got to use. God was in control. Throughout the Old Testament, that's the message. There are a lot of kings. There's only one God, the king of kings. So you see in verse 16, Matthew 1, 16, notice, Jacob begat Joseph. This is the husband of Mary. Of whom? You ought to circle that and draw three stars around it and have it tattooed on your neighbor's forehead. Of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ? Of whom is Greek feminine singular? I know, woo, I'm excited about that. That made my Christmas. It means he was born of Mary on earth, but of the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin, just like the angel had announced, just like prophecy had said. Joseph was his legal earthly father. The Holy Spirit was his divine father. He is God. He has the legal right. He has the divine right. It's the virgin birth. I want to read you a quote, and we're going to get into these responses, just to show you how important this is. I want to read you this quote. It's from a popular religious personality. If I told you his name, you'd know who he is. I'm not going to do that. This is a popular religious personality everybody knows. Here's his quote about the virgin birth. Quote, when I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. I won't deny the virgin birth in print or in public, but I can't preach it or teach it either. Now, if my pastor stood up and said that from the pulpit, you know what I would do? I would walk out the door. Because without the virgin birth, what hope does that dude have to offer people? Do the best you can. Work hard. You know, next week's January 1st. You need to have some resolutions. You need to get it together. Some of you need to lose some weight. You need to be good people. You need to do the best you can because one day there's a judgment coming. Why could Jesus Christ offer hope? Because he was virgin born. If he wasn't virgin born, he was a sinner. If he was a sinner, he could die and he could be a good leader. He was the greatest teacher that ever walked the planet, the greatest man that ever lived. True. All those things are true. And he could preach that. Well, what he couldn't do is save you from your sins. Why? Because he's a sinner himself. For me to be saved, I, somebody who does not have sin tainting him has to pay the price, or I'm going to pay the price. Jesus paid it in my place, and therefore I have hope. This guy has an incredible following, but he has no hope to offer. Let's begin to look at the responses to that message. Let's look at Joseph's first, starting in verse 18. What was Joseph's response to the virgin birth? What was Joseph's response to the hope that God offered at Christmas? And Joseph's response was that he was honored. Honored to be chosen, to be part of that. By the way, for you as a Christian, your response every day that Jesus came and died for you and has saved you should be that I'm honored to be called Christian. I'm honored to be able to bear that banner. I'm honored to offer and extend the, the message of Christ, the good news, the hope. He was honored. Matthew 1.18 now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, engaged, before they came together, had 
relations. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or righteous or devout man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly or privately. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Three things I put there on your outline for you I want you to note. Joseph's response, he was honored in righteousness, in obedience, and in faith. We know very little about Joseph from the Bible when we're told very little about him. Uh, almost nothing. He was a carpenter. He was Mary's husband. He lived in Nazareth, and he didn't have any money. That's about all we know about him, except the most important thing we know about him is that he was a, a genuine, mature believer in Jesus Christ. You notice that from what's going on right here. Here's his problem in verse 18. He's engaged to Mary, and Mary shows up pregnant. What's the one thing Joseph knows? It ain't mine. That's all he knows at this point. She's carrying a child, and it is not mine. Now, he could have, and he struggles with, by Jewish law, she could have been stoned to death. We talked about that before. They could literally, he could have had her put to death for, for, for showing up pregnant, and it was not his. She was an adulteress. She could have been stoned to death. But notice, he thinks about whom? Whom is he thinking about? Look at verse 18 and 19 again. Whom is Joseph thinking about? It shows you the depth of his, his walk with his God. He's thinking about Mary. He doesn't want to put her to shame. See, So there was another option. He could divorce her privately. That's what it means by put away privately or secretly. He could have had, got a writ of divorcement and put her away privately and then would avoid the public shame. But he doesn't even do that. That's what he's considering. Then he gets a message. Same thing we've seen with Mary. We saw with the shepherds. The angel appears again. Gabriel was a busy cat, this, apparently, during this time. He shows up again. And what's his first message to Joseph? Don't what? Don't be afraid. What do you say to Mary? Don't be afraid. What do you say to the shepherds? Don't be afraid. By the way, there's a principle there. I, then, you know, I, I like to make lists when I study the Bible because I'm dumb and it really helps me to just make lists. One of the things that jumped out at me as I was making a list about what Gabriel had to say, he said that apparently he wanted them not to be afraid. And I need to understand that there's a message there for me. If, if an angel showed up in my room or in my work, by wherever I am and starts talking to me, I'd probably be afraid too. But the message to Joseph is not so much the, the appearance of the angel, but don't be afraid of the situation, Joseph. Just a little side principle, somewhat of a tangent, but I think it's important for us as Christians to take from this. The Bible says we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of what? Power, love, and a sound mind. Don't be afraid to be who you are in Christ. Joseph, you are a devout man. Don't be afraid to do what needs to be done now. See, because he could be shunned. He could be out, kicked out of the synagogue. He could use his, lose his capacity to earn a living because his, his betrothed wife, his engaged wife, technically his wife, is pregnant, and they have not consummated their marriage yet, but he wants to do what's right. 
He's honored. He's got a problem. What is the way he looks at it? And again, a principle for us. Think about the conversation that Mary and Joseph are having at this moment in time. I, uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Their conversation as two devout believers is, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do? Again, we're not told a whole lot about him, but based on his response, what you notice is he's a just man, verse 19. That means righteous, devout. He thinks about Mary. Now notice verse 20 again. Notice verse 20. While he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, and that which is conceived her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll bring forth the Son, Jesus. All this was done might be fulfilled. Now verse 24, Joseph, when he awoke from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Not really understanding, not really knowing what's going on. This is just, again, just trying to get your mind wrapped around this. Virgins don't have babies. But he's been told this is of God. Don't be afraid. Take her as your wife and trust me. Three things I put there. Notice, very important. He's a righteous man. He obeyed God. Not, uh, not understanding, but he obeyed God anyway. That's what faith is. Genuine faith in the Bible, inexorably and always, has an arrow drawn from it to the word obedience. Faith always leads to obedience. That's how you know you have faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's a channel of trust in the God who's proven himself trustworthy. Remember, Joseph is a righteous man. He's not just born again like the night before. He's been serving God for a long time. He knows God is who God, he, he knows the great I am, and he knows he can trust him. So I've gotten this message from God that I don't completely understand how he's going to work it all out, but I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to obey him, and I want to do what's right. So he does. Don't be afraid. And in Matthew chapter 2, we're not going to read the verses, but in 19 through 23, the last we're really told about Joseph, he marries Mary. He gives Jesus a home while he's growing up. He raises Jesus in his home, and he gives him that legal right to the throne of David. He was a righteous man. And apparently somewhere before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he passes away because you never hear about him again. But he did the right thing. There's another message there. You may not get any recognition by anybody for doing what's right. But when you die and you stand before Jesus Christ, he will say, welcome home, good and faithful servant. We saw when we studied Mary that she was a devout believer, and so was her husband. He wanted to do what was right. Now let's look at Herod's response to pick the opposite in Matthew chapter 2. Herod's response was hostility. Hostility. I put four things on there for you. Fear, deceit, anger, and murder. Look at Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, we're going to get back to them in a moment, from the east they came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Was he ever? And all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. Now notice, it's interesting. Who is he asking that question of? The chief priests and the scribes. Where's the Messiah going to be born? So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet. At least they knew what the Bible said. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they knew that was a prophecy of the Messiah. 
Then Herod, when he had secretly called the Magi, the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. What do we know about this Herod guy? Well, one of his titles was King of the Jews. Interesting. The Roman Senate called him that. Maybe a name you remember from history. Mark Antony was the one who spearheaded this, and they called Herod King of the Jews. He ruled Palestine under the Roman authority. He ruled Palestine from 37 to 4 BC. He built the incredible fortress there called Masada. Uh, when you take a trip to Israel, at least when I, I went, we went to Masada, went up to the top of it. An amazing fortress. He had that built. He remodeled the temple, became known as Rubble's temple, became known as Herod's temple. He remodeled it. He was an Edomite or a descendant of Esau. He had no legal right to the throne of the Jews. He had just usurped it, had taken it. He murdered people to protect his throne. He was married at least nine times. This cat was so wicked, he murdered three sons. He murdered a wife, he murdered the high priest, he murder, murdered his brother-in-law, and he murdered his mother-in-law because he was afraid that they might be after some, somehow be after him. And I love this one. When it came time for his death, he had set out a decree. Just before he was to die, he would to gather all of Jerusalem's highest, most well-respected citizens to gather them together and murder them for one reason. So that when he, Herod, died, there would be people mourning in Jerusalem. He was that wicked, that self-centered, that narcissistic. This was the guy who called himself king of the Jews. So his response when he hears that the Messiah is being born is what? Fear. Fear of what? This is another threat to my throne. I see another rival. This is the Messiah who's coming to be the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. I can't have this. So verse 3 tells us he was troubled. One of the reasons he was probably troubled is that the Magi, I know that historically because of the three gifts, we pictured it as three guys coming, but probably it was many more than that. And because they were political, uh, had political power as well as they were wealthy, they probably traveled with a lot of soldiers and a lot of servants. This was probably a huge entourage of people flowing into Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. By the way, how far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? Anybody know? About five miles. We're not talking about a long way, right? About halfway between here and Bartlett. So he was right there. And all these people are flowing into Jerusalem wanting to see the king of the Jews. We've heard about him. Herod is freaked. And he's even ignorant about the Old Testament prophecy. He's the king of the Jews. And what does he have to do? He has to get called the priest in and say, could you tell me when the Messiah was going to be born and where? So then verse 7, you see his deceit. He lies to the Magi. What does he tell them? They say, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And what's his response? I'd like to do that myself. Would you find out where he is? I'd like to go worship him as well. We know clearly that was not his plan. His plan is down in verse 12. Again, notice verse 12. Being divinely warned in a dream they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way, the Magi. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, a dream saying, to rise, take the young child of his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. Again, he's being warned to flee. Why? For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Notice verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, because they went home a different way, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the wise men. I want you to notice a phrase in verse 16. 
said he was exceedingly angry. The Greek word there means he was absolutely, completely controlled by his anger. In other words, he was out of his mind. He was no longer within his uh, being controlled. He was not sane. He was absolutely dominated and controlled by this anger. And he said, all right, they won't tell me where the, where the child is. I'll just kill every child that possibly could be that child. I'll just kill them all. Now, that's not necessarily a huge number, maybe 20 to 30. But even that, if it were one or two, it's ridiculously wicked. But that's who this man was. Hostility toward the king of the Jews. The third response, that of the Magi. Their response was homage. Matthew 2, verse 1, we start there again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men. That word is magi, M-A-G-O-I. We get our word magic from it. It came from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. The literal term magi means scholars who studied the stars. The historical context of who are these people, they were probably a priestly political class of Parthians, an organization, group of people who lived east of Palestine from about the 7th century B.C. They were astronomers, they were astrologists, they were farmers, they were historians, they were sorcerers, they were into the occult. They were. What's really interesting, if you go back 700 years, they were among the highest ranking and most influential officials in the Babylonian Empire. This is what really fascinates me, and this is where you see the hand of God. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians sacked, began to sack under three sieges, Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jews. And they took the Jews into captivity. And if you read the book of Daniel, he was about 15 years old, and they take Daniel into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And long story short, because God had given Daniel the capacity to interpret dreams, he becomes the second most powerful man in the world under Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and, and uh, Belshazzar, different kings in Babylon, Medo-Persia, and he becomes the boss of all the wise men who were the ancestors of these three, three excuse me, these magi, this group. He, their ancestors. Daniel had been their boss. And if you read the book of Daniel after Nebuchadnezzar, is, uh, uh, God gets his attention Nebuchadnezzar says, I now see that the God of Daniel is truly God. He got it. And he promotes Daniel. And all of these wise men now work for Daniel. All of them. He's their boss. What do you think Daniel talked to them about? What do you think Daniel taught them? What do you think they passed on from generation to generation to generation? The story of Daniel's God. The story of Daniel's son of man. The story of God's Messiah and not only that, Jews remained in Babylon at the end of the, of the captivity. Some went home. The majority stayed. What do you think they passed on from generation to generation to generation? The story of the one true God and his Messiah. Now, we don't know about the star. We don't know how God did all that. But what I do know is who, who created the stars in the first place? God did. You don't th you think he could make one and he could guide somebody with it if he wanted to? We don't know exactly how all that worked. What we do know is that these guys have been hearing about the Messiah and now they believe he's been born. And they've come to Bethlehem. You see, they've been taught. They knew more than Herod did. By the way, they're not Jewish. What are they? They're Gentiles. And they've come to show their homage to the king of the Jews by worship, by rejoicing, and by giving. They're here. They're god 
God-fearing Gentiles seeking the king. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says these words, The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And I believe it's talking about this night. God said, it's time. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 2, excuse me. Whereas he has been born king of the Jews, we've seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Look at verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And this is probably six months to a year and a half later. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. really want you to notice verse 10. They've been looking for the king of the Jews, the Messiah. They came, number one, to worship him. And when they found him, what was their response? Herod's was, I want to kill him. Theirs was what? Rejoicing. With exceedingly great joy. Herod had exceedingly great anger. They had exceedingly great joy. The two extremes. They found the Messiah. They found the Christ child. They found Emmanuel. And their response was, we came to worship. And they rejoiced. But then notice what they did. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They sought the Messiah. They found the Messiah. They worshipped him. They rejoiced, and they gave to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Symbolically, theologians have always thought this about the three gifts. Gold, obviously, is of, of great, great value and what a king would have. The royalty, the deity of Jesus Christ. The, the royalty, excuse me, the fact he's the king of the Jews. The frankincense was an expensive uh, incense, expensive aroma used on, only on special occasions of special sacrifice, picturing his deity. And myrrh was a less expensive perfume used as an anesthetic mixed with wine and also used at burials, picturing his humanity. He is the king who is God, who is man. We sing at Christmas a carol that has these words in them. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. They got it. See, Mary and Joseph were young, poor, Nazarenes, despised, Jewish. The shepherds were poor, uneducated Jews. The Magi were rich, powerful, educated Gentiles. But all three groups had faith. And as a result, they had hope. Herod had hostility. And all Herod had was fear. He's after me. No hope. Look at the verses on your outline and we're through. Romans 5.5 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. History met hope. And I guess the last thing I would say to you as, as an encouragement to you as a believer, that was their moment in time. This is your 
moment in time. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. They didn't know when he was coming. He came. We know he's coming back again. We don't know when that is. Well, right now, at this moment in time, God has said to us, here's your opportunity. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel, the good news of great joy. Share the hope that's in your heart because you're born again. The Christmas that we celebrate, the God who came to offer hope. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you. We have a moment in time that not only did Jesus come, not only did he die, he rose from the dead, has saved us to a living hope, has given us an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved, reserved, can't be taken away in heaven for us. So, Lord, I pray for us as believers we'd be excited about our faith, not just at Christmas, every day. We'd share our faith. We'd live our faith. And above all, we'd be people of hope because Jesus is the hope, the blessed hope. He's coming back. He came the first time. He's coming again. We thank you for history, meeting hope. And every day, we have an opportunity in history to share hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. If you'd like for me to pray with you, I'll be down front.